How's everyone doing? Awesome. Awesome. Good to have you here. Um, I'm going to read the text that we're going to go through today. We're starting in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to pray, and uh, we'll jump in. We've got, got a lot. So let's, let me read this to you, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the middle of each row all the way back. You can go ahead and grab it. 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for those... I'm sorry. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral people who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray this morning a, uh, a special amount of help me, that you would help me communicate your word effectively and that um, everything I say would be helpful. I pray that it would be um, perfectly suitable for those that are here who need to hear from you this morning from your word. And God, I pray for everyone here, Lord, that you would, you would open their hearts, you would open their minds to hearing from you. Holy Spirit, would you Teach us, guide us into all truth. Reveal yourself to us and where we need to walk more deeply with you. We pray, Lord, that you would, after today, stir our hearts to be more passionate for and more loving towards Jesus. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at 1 Timothy, and I want to give you a little bit of background first before we, before we jump in and so you can understand um, what's going on. And there's just really two points today. Um, as we just read through, Paul writing to Timothy, telling him basically two things. Number one, teach sound doctrine. Number two, love people. Um, and I'm, we're going to get to those in just a second, but let me give you a little bit of an understanding of what's going on um, in Acts chapter 16, Paul tells us, or Luke is writing, tells us that Paul went um, into a city where he met Timothy. And Timothy's um, mother and grandmother had raised him up to know Christ. And Paul met him and decided that he was a, a good follower. And, and 
Philippians 2.20, when he was writing about Timothy, he said, I have no one like him. So we know that Paul has deep affections for Timothy. And so he, he had appointed Timothy the pastor at the church in Ephesus. And so as he had appointed him the, the pastor at the church in Ephesus, um, Timothy had been there a little while. Timothy was young. And so Paul wrote, wrote this letter and also another letter, 2 Timothy, to him to give him instructions about how to be a pastor um, in this city. And as he wrote this letter, he's, uh, he's advising him on some, some key issues in the, in the city of Ephesus. One is proper worship. One is qualifications of elders and deacons are basically making sure he has the right leadership. One is to confront false teaching, which is something that we'll see today. And um, one is to exhort him towards personal holiness. Now, um, I think that the first thought is, okay, all this is for a pastor. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and that's not me. If I'm not a pastor, then, you know, some of these things are going to apply. Some of these things are not going to apply. Um, I want to I read a text to you from Ephesians 4. Now, remember, um, Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus. So this is Paul writing a letter to the people in Ephesus um, Telling them this, and this we're going to start in Ephesians four. All this will be on the screen if you don't want to flip over. And it says he's he's talking about um, God giving apostles and preachers and pastors over to churches, and what happens when he does that? Because the the worst thing you, mistake you can make right now is to think, okay, these instructions are to Timothy, who's a pastor. These things don't apply to me. Look what look what it says here. Um, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers to. So this is why. Churches have these people in leadership Two, here it is. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Um, so the first thing that I want you to see here is that. In order for the body to be built up, pastors of churches are supposed to equip you to do the work of the ministry. It's not. We do the work of the ministry and you kind of come and spectate and and talk about things or just make church a little nice addition to your happy life in Jesus. So you don't go to hell and you come on Sundays and everything's fine. And the rest of the week you do whatever you want. Church is not meant to do that. Um, There are churches you can go to where you can be a spectator and you can come on Sundays and you can just um, basically be a person in the seat for them so the pastors can brag about the numbers of that they have in their blogs each week. And that's not what we want here at this church. If you're going to come here, I want you to be an active participant in receiving the equipping that you should be receiving so that you can start becoming ministers. That's my job is to equip you to do ministry. But I can't make you do ministry. You've got to jump in and start serving. Um, so don't just come here on Sundays and grace us with your presence just so that you can be here this Sunday and not do anything in the church at all. Um, we need for you to jump in and start serving and plugging in. If, if this is your church, if this is where you're going to call home, then you must do that. All right, let's continue to look at this text. It says um, that he's given the, the ministers to build up the body for the <clears throat> to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body, which is so that means you're supposed to build up the people in this church just as much as I'm supposed to build up the people in the church. It's not me by myself on some kind of Lone Ranger deal. You're supposed to be there. Um, and it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's given us a, a goal to reach for. Jesus, that's your goal. The people sitting beside you, your goal is to make them as holy as Jesus. We know that that won't happen perfectly while we're here, but that's your goal. It's not just to come sit here and sing. 
Um, then it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Um, Paul is going to address in this letter in 1 Timothy um, the false teachers, and he's even a kind of addressing it here in this text here. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. This is what we want you to do here. To grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together <clears throat> by every joint which it is equipped. Don't miss this next sentence here. This is huge. This is huge. If we want Remedy Church to grow spiritually, to be more mature, this is huge. We absolutely need you. Look what it says. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Meaning, Aiden, my son, who's one and a half, is never going to have the size arm as me. That would be insane to see a one-year-old with this size arm. Our bodies grow proportionately. This church body will grow proportionately. If you're the arm, then... Someone else who's the arm has to grow the same length as you or the legs or the feet. And we've already seen that you are the ones that are to be pursuing holiness with each other. So we need you to plug in and grow spiritually as well. Or the whole body won't grow and work properly. All right. Now, that's the charge that Paul is giving to Timothy here. And I don't want you to make the mistake to think this is just... A charge towards pastors. This is a charge towards everyone. Um, this today will be directions. And I know this is Paul talking to Timothy, the pastor. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is direction for gospel-centered um, ministers. Can't talk today. Gospel-centered ministers. Which is you and me. It's all of us. So as we go through this book, sure there will be some really specific things. Like when we're looking at the qualifications of elders. Um, that they need to be above reproach, the husband and one wife, not drunkards, um, hospitable, etc. And you're thinking, all right, that's that's elders. That I mean, that's the that's the pastors of the church. And yeah, they do have to meet those qualifications. But <clears throat> you should strive for those things anyway, just because you're a Christian. It doesn't mean like, oh, those are the super guys and they do whatever they want. And I'm still going to, you know, just kind of relax because I don't have to meet up to those qualifications. Um, so as we're going through this, I want you to see that there's two things that he tells Timothy that he must do. And as he must do these things, I think that this is something that all of us should do. Every person in this room. These are directions for gospel centered ministers. And I said there's two of them. One, they should teach sound doctrine. And the second, they should really love people. And we're going to we're going to unpack those in here in just a second. All right. Let's look at the text here. Um, verse three, it says, as I will. Yeah, let's keep going. Um. I don't want to do too much on the, on the introduction. I'll do some more introduction in 1 Timothy next week because there's a lot I want to say here. Um, verse 3, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons. So he's telling him, this is what you need to do, Timothy. You need to charge these people. You need to exhort. You need to give this direction to these people. Charge them to not teach <clears throat> not to teach any doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths or ge endless genealogy which promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God, that is by faith. So he doesn't want them to teach false doctrine. So that's the first thing that I want us to write down. The first direction for gospel-centered ministers for you and for me is this, that we should teach sound doctrine. <clears throat> um, and the kind of doctrine that we should teach is this, um, not things that are in speculations and genealogies that promote these things, but rather the stewardship 
from God that is by faith. That's what it says in the end of verse four. The stewardship that of God that is by faith, which means sound doctrine for us is, is going to be first and foremost that we are teaching justification by faith. Now, if that's a big word for you, if you've never heard it, let me explain it really fast. Um, you've probably heard in church land plenty of times that you need to be saved. You know, you just need to get saved and get Jesus. And this is what it means. You need to be saved. Um, our being saved or our salvation is really kind of made up of, of distinct parts. Um, and, and that whole thing is, is called salvation. Regener- it's made up of these four terms. They're big, but I'm going to explain them all. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, regeneration is when God reaches down and regenerates your heart, or, or being known as, in John 3, being born again. Whenever you all of a sudden have the eyes of your heart illuminated to the beauty of Christ. When that happens, you finally see and understand the gospel and all its reality and all its truth that Jesus died on the cross for you in your place. When that happens, he gives you faith. When he gives you faith, you put your faith in him. And whenever you put your faith in Christ, he declares you innocent. He declares you 100% righteous. When you are declared innocent, when you are declared 100% righteous, that means you're now justified. And that's what we're teaching here. That's one of the sound doctrines we should teach is that justification, being declared righteous, being declared innocent by God is by faith. It's not by anything else. It's not by, as he says here, um, being devoted to myths and genealogies. Um, It's not by trying to, or if you look at verse 7, which it says that, There are people who are trying to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or about the things which they make confident assertions. Justification doesn't come through a misunderstanding of what law keeping is as well. Um, Justification is by faith. Now, sanctification, let me finish out this. Sanctification is the process of growing in holiness, the process of becoming more like Jesus from the moment you put your faith in Christ until you drop dead and are buried. That whole 80 years, 20 years, 5 years... 50 years, whatever God gives you, that whole time is a process where you should be growing in holiness. You should be becoming more and more Christ-like. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to hell now. I can do whatever I want. It's growing in holiness. If you're not growing in holiness, if you're not producing the fruit of good works, that sanctification is evidence to us that justification never happened if, that, if there is no fruit. If there is fruit, then you can say justification has really happened. Um, And then finally, glorification is whenever you die, your body is made like Christ's glorious body and you're glorified. And all the problems of your body right now are made whole. Um, Now, the first thing that we want to do as people who teach sound doctrine is to teach justification by faith alone. We want to help people continually see the difference between law and gospel. Gospel is what Jesus has done for you On your behalf on the cross. He has done everything that you need in order to be righteous. Law is you still need to perform. You still need to meet these requirements. You still need to do these things in order to be seen as righteous. That's that's law. The other is gospel. We want to continually try to teach these things to people. The difference between law and gospel. And what's the difference? Now the second thing is that we want to. um, As we're teaching sound doctrine. Is we want to refute Law-based justification. Look what it says here in verse 4. It says, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Paul is calling this, um, from verse 7, these are people people that are devoting themselves to myths and genealogies. 
Um, verse 7, he describes them as people who are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things that they, which make confident assertions. Now, this is different. This is a little different than our study through Galatians. Our study through Galatians, the people that were um, desiring to be teachers of the law, <clears throat> they were wanting the Galatians to specifically say, if you want to be a Christian, you also have to law keep. You also have to be circumcised. If you get circumcised, then you're really a Christian. Then you can really. And we, we showed continually for 17 weeks that the gospel is faith in Christ, not faith in Christ plus anything. Now, this is a little bit different. Um, these people who are desiring to be teachers of the law are wanting to read the law continually and devote themselves to myths and genealogies, devote themselves to speculations outside of what they're reading in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. Or as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see these so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And you'll finally run into a name that you can't pronounce um, and then they'll, they'll take that genealogy and they'll run off into a, a big story that's not necessarily textual. That's what he's trying to say here. Now, I want you to, um, I want you to hear this because, uh, well, first of all, verse 8 says, Now, if we, kn we know that the law is good if one use it, uses it lawfully. All right, so if he's saying that these teachers of the law aren't doing it correct, but we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. But the way they're doing it is just by running into myths and genealogies. Um, there's, there's a couple of things here. Number one, if verse 8 says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, then how do you use the law, the law lawfully? Um, and the second thing is, in verse 7, when it says that they're teachers of the law and they're devoting themselves to myths and genealogies, what exactly does that mean? All right, the New Testament commentary explains that to us. Um, I was reading and the New Testament commentary says this. I'm going to tell you um, what the New Testament commentary says about how someone can misuse the law by devoting themselves to myths and, geneal myths and genealogies. And then hopefully you can see the immediate application right now for us today. This is what it says. These people could study God's holy word with its basic precepts and, in and <clears throat> injunctions and could, re could remain very calm under it all. They read the Holy Scriptures, they see what the Holy Scriptures say, and they remain totally unmoved. Then he says, as if it did not touch them, they would simply read on or go back until they came to some proper name or perhaps some ceremonial detail. The proper name is the genealogies. The ceremonial detail is the myths. Then, all of a the sudden, they would become enthused. They would become more excited about a name or some ceremonial detail rather than reading through God's holy law, seeing the precepts and injunctions that that are applying to them to their their life. They become more excited about names. Or just myths. I think a couple immediate applications for us today. How many of us are guilty about being more excited about contemporary Hollywood church world names than we are about Jesus. How many of us listen to R.C. Sproul or John Piper or Matt Chandler or Mark Driscoll or whoever podcast, read books? How many of us do those more than we actually read the Bible and learn about Jesus? How excited are we about what you call it said versus about this rather than what Jesus had to say about it? Perhaps. I'm just I'm just wondering a good practice would be 
in this regard, for every minute you spend per week on those things, you should spend the equal amount of minutes reading your Bible about Jesus. If you spend 15 minutes a day or 10 minutes a day with Jesus and 45 minutes at a pop on a podcast or two or three per day, then something's out of whack. If we get more excited about that. Now, this is just for church world. If you're in the middle of church world, if you're not in the middle of church world um, and you have no idea about who the, who the people I'm talking about, maybe this is a more direct application for you. If you know more about ERAs and baseball and football and basketball and the players on this and the TV people and the movie people, and you can name the TV show that comes on at this time and how that storyline's going, and you have no idea anything about the Bible, well, then I think that you're guilty of this as well. I think you're just as guilty of this as well. Who cares about those things compared to Jesus? Jesus should not be the secondary thing that you study over baseball or football or whatever. I'm not saying not to do those things. It's okay to do those things. If you're interested in football or baseball and, and, and you're using those things because you're interested or you're using those things for the power of the gospel to be able to share with someone, that's fine. But don't know more about your favorite team statistics and their players or your favorite TV show's characters than you know about the Bible or the people in the Bible. That's horrible. So two things we want to do is we want to teach sound doctrine. Number one, what justification by faith is, but also refute law-based justification, um, which is basically where it says in 6 through 9, it says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. The law has been given to us so that we can put it in front of unbelievers and let the law do its work. Now, I want to explain to you what the law um, is use, how the law is useful for unbelievers. Some of you have probably seen these, these um, television shows. You may have not. Whenever Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron go out to the people, and you ever seen the one when Ray Comfort just get knocked in the head by that guy who gets real mad at him? By your own confession, you're a lawyer and an adulterer. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You ever seen that? Maybe not, but it's, it's really funny. Um, it's called The Way of the Master. They go out on the street and they interview people. They say, you ever lied? Well, then you're a liar. You ever been a, an adulterer? You ever looked at a woman lustfully? Well, by your own confession, you're a liar and an adulterer. What are you going to do? And in some European countries, this man who was kind of a man, but kind of a woman, I couldn't tell, just got mad at him and just started hitting him and started yelling, don't you come to my country and tell me all this. Um, you really should see it. It's kind of comical. You can YouTube it. It's on there. He gets knocked in the head pretty hard. But um, what he's doing, though, the strategy that they're using is this. They're wanting to put the law in front of people and let the law do its work because the law has told us, the, the Bible has told us that the law... Um, functions in certain ways for unbelievers. And I want to quickly, quickly go through these four things that you can see. And these are four different texts, um, three in Romans, one in Galatians. And this, this is what it says. Number one is that the law instructs. In Romans chapter 2, it says, this, it says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed by the law. So we know that the law instructs us and we know that for unbelievers it instructs them to what is righteous what is moral living and what is not it tells them what are the parameters of what is right and what is wrong in life and that's good so they know i've done this wrong 
because I've done this wrong, therefore now I'm a sinner, which we'll get to in a second. Here's another one. Um, and Romans 3.20, the law also helps them see that they're a sinner or brings to them a knowledge of sin. It says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here's another, here's another thing that the law does for unbelievers. It lets them see that they're a sinner. They wouldn't know that they're a sinner if the law had not informed them that they're a sinner. The law brings to them a knowledge of sin. <clears throat> now, some of them rebel against that immediately. But when left, uh, left behind guy, Kirk Cameron, is doing this walking around on the street, that's what he's wanting to do. He's wanting them to see that they're a sinner. Let them realize that they have sin in their life. And, and don't think that... Um, there's good people and there's bad people and the bad people go to hell and the good people, if they just try, go to heaven. We're all bad people and there's only one good person and it's Jesus. So he's wanting them to see that. The third thing that the law does is this. It kills us. It brings death to us. This is what it says in Romans 7. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And then he says it a different way. The very commandment that promised life Meaning that if I would have kept it perfectly, I would have lived. But immediately when it came, I knew that I couldn't keep it perfectly. And it proved to be death to me. So there's a second way. I died. It brought death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Here's the commandments. I can't do them. Sin gives birth in my heart and I immediately want to disobey them. Because we're born in the line of Adam. We all will do that continually. And so it says... For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So this is, this is the next thing that the law does. The law shows you not only that you are dead, but it does kill you. The law is good, but it has to happen for us. You have to realize that you are now dead spiritually and need to be made alive in Christ. And there is no way to be made alive except through faith in Christ. So that's the next thing. And the last thing it does is that the law holds us captive. The law holds them captive. It says this for unbelievers. Now, before faith came, they were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. It's talking about unbelievers. And it's saying before faith came, before Christ came, the law held them captive. They had no hope outside of faith in Christ in order to be saved. But then faith came, a way came for us to escape from this death and be made alive through Christ. And so the law holds people captive. Now, those are the things that the law does for us, um, for unbelievers. And so we want to refute law-based justification. In other words, we cannot be counted innocent by law-keeping. The law serves a purpose. It helps people see that they need Christ, but only can they be justified by faith in Christ. And that's it. Faith in Christ. So the first thing that we want to do as gospel-centered ministers is teach sound doctrine. Now, here's the problem. Um, I think that comparatively, I think we're doing okay in this. I think that if there's going to be, maybe this is the best way I can say, if there's going to be a place that we're going to fail, I don't think it's going to be in sound doctrine. I think that a lot of us like to study doctrine. 
I think a lot of us enjoy knowing correct things about God so that our affections are rightly aimed towards Jesus. You, you can't worship someone you don't know. And so we want to know him well and we want to build up our knowledge and we want to make sure that sound doctrine is happening. Um, and we want to help people see that. I think that we understand that. Um, and I don't know that that's the place we're going to fail. Um, but the second one here, I think, is a place if we're not careful... If we're not careful, that we may. Look what it says in verse 5. The aim of our charge, and this is talking to pastors, but as I said, everyone's a part of this. Everyone's a minister. Everyone's not a pastor. Everyone's not an elder, but everyone is a minister. And there's a difference between elders and there's a difference between ministers. But everyone can be a servant, a minister, someone who serves the church. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The second thing, the second direction for us is this, is that we should really love others. We should really love others. Um, The word love has been abused We say, I love my children. I love my church. I love Jesus. I love cheeseburgers. Um, I love going to the mall. I love that song. I love my car. I love that graphic. I love... We can't equate. And this is how it's been abused. We'll, We'll say we love my children. And we'll say I love cheeseburgers. Now, honestly, we don't love cheeseburgers the same that way that we love our, our spouse or our brother or our mother. And so the word love has been abused. Um, <laughs> my children crack me up. This is just a side note. This has no bearing whatsoever. But um, my daughters, they're so funny. They went to the zoo this past Wednesday. And um, you know the monkeys at the zoo that run around that have the red behinds? Um, we, yeah, the baboons, the red behind baboons. We have... We have convinced Karis that the baboons have red behinds because they've gotten so many spankings from their parents. And so therefore they should obey so they don't have red behinds like the baboons. Um, It's really funny. Anyway, um, (laughs) I love my children. I love Jesus. Um, But here's the problem. We should really love others. We should really love others. And because this word's been abused, I think that your thoughts are being confused. Yeah, I love the people in the church. Of course I do. I love Jesus. I love going out to eat. And because that word's being confused, I don't think that you really get what it means to love the people in the church. We don't love the people in the church like we love going out to eat. We love the people in the church like you love Jesus. And it's being confused in this weird hierarchy of where love's falling. And... If there's a place I think we're going to fail if we're not careful is that we're not loving others. We love ourselves, no question. We are probably the most self-centered society ever. But I don't know that we get that we should really love others. New Testament commentary says that the goal of this, the goal is love rather than vain showing of speculative learning. Our desire is not to grow and and sound doctrine and just be there. Our desire is to also couple that with true, 
deep affections that when you look out at your workplace or when you look out at this church or when you look out into your family, the soul of your spirit is weeping because they don't know Christ and they will perish eternally without him. And I'm just not sure you you weep in your spirit for people. I'm not sure that I do either enough. There's a place that we're going to fail. It's this. Galatians 5, 6 says this. For in Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision really counts. Now, he's talking about law keeping there. But the second part is great. But only faith working through love. You have faith in Christ. There should be work on your behalf, good works towards other people through love. And these good works are not motivated because you want to have a right standing with Jesus. That's already there. Faith working through love, deep, real affections for other people. Maybe we could love other people the same way we say we love Jesus. Maybe we could love other people the same way we clearly Love ourselves. Maybe we could really do as the scriptures say and count other people better than ourselves. Francis Schaeffer said this. This is, this is awesome. If you don't read Francis Schaeffer, you need to look him up. Just amazing. Brilliant. Love is the most powerful apologetic for the gospel. Love is the most powerful apologetic for the gospel. Really powerful. Now, look what this love comes from. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If you're unloving, let's look at one of these three things. A pure heart. A real, regenerated heart that's been pure, that's been washed clean by Christ. A good conscience. That the Holy Spirit is working in conjunction with your conscience, convicting your conscience, leading you away from sin and into holiness. And as that happens, as you move away from sin and towards holiness, there should be a real love of other people as a real love of Christ grows for them. And lastly, a sincere faith. No love for others. No real affections for others. If there is a deep, long history in your life of zero concern for those around you, but a deep, long history and concern for yourself, no real love for others, and not being shown by your works, seems like a logical conclusion would be not a sincere faith. Thankful for not going to hell, but is that sincere faith? Or does that just, in the end, turn itself back around to a self-centered love? Sincere faith. So if we don't have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, perhaps we're falling short at really loving others. So let's be intentional about the way we use the word love. But let's also, more than that, be intentional about the way we really show True love for people and count them better than ourselves and serve them and put in front of them the gospel as we meet needs, etc., but also tell them about Christ. Now, 
I want to conclude with this. I want to conclude with this. Let's read verses 9b. We stopped at, at 9 where it says, Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the laws and the disobedient. All right, right here, I want to start where it says 4. Um, and as we go into this, I want you to think, who do I know that's being described right now? <clears throat> who do I know that's being described in these verses? Perhaps it's you, but hopefully you know somebody that's an unbeliever. Hopefully you've spent some time in your life around people that are unbelievers and a, and a name will come into your mind. And what I want you to do is grab a pen, really grab a pen, and where it says notes, if you haven't written anything, write down a name right now. Look what it says. 9b, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, I'm not asking you to be judgmental for the sake of being judgmental in order to be mean. I'm asking you to think through here because you have deep affections for lost people and want them to come to know Christ. Who do you know in your life that you would say, this troubles my spirit deeply, but they are unholy and profane? There is no love for Christ. Who do you know who does not honor their father and mother? Perhaps you don't. Who do you know who is a murderer? And, and remember what Matthew 5 says. If you've heard it said that <clears throat> of old you shall not murder, but whoever murders <clears throat> and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of of the hell of fire. So murder is not just actual murder, but it's also anger in your heart towards someone. Who do you know um, who is sexually immoral? Whether they're cheating on their wife, whether they're addicted to pornography, whether they're homosexuals, whether they have premarital sex or premarital hooking up. Who do you know that is in this category? Who do you know that's, that's a liar or a perjurer? Who do you know that meets these categories? If you don't know anybody, I might submit. I may submit to you that you may not be loving because you're not being around unbelievers enough. If you do know someone, I want to challenge you. I want to I plead with you. The aim of our charge is love. It's love. The most loving thing you can do now, because you have been made aware by the Holy Spirit that they need someone, is to go to them and do life with them, truly love them, truly serve them, and truly try to communicate the beauty of Jesus and the gospel to them. It takes time. It is work. It is messy. It is sloppy. You can't be selfish. But you're being called out this morning to be a minister. You're being called out as someone who might be selfish and called out away from that to love others and be a minister. You have been, what it says in verse 11, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which when I have been entrusted, you also, like Paul and Timothy and me and every Christian, have been entrusted with the glorious gospel. And if the gospel is glorious to you, then it must motivate you to go and be loving towards others. 
don't just be, number one, the doctrine police. We don't need that. Primarily. We also need love to be coupled with right doctrine. So I just want to beg you and plead with you. The name that you've written down this morning is someone that you would truly pray over. That you would go to them this week. You would call them, email them if they're not around you. It doesn't matter. I mean, I don't, I don't really care where they live. I care more about you being obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading right now as a gospel-centered minister because the Bible has clearly indicated to us in Ephesians 4 that I am to equip you for the sake of ministry along with me to make this a part of your ministry this week in doing this. Because you and I are partakers and have been entrusted with this glorious gospel. You and I were once dead with no hope, perishing. And God has shown his glorious gospel into our hearts. And now because of Christ, we have a hope. Now because of Christ, we have life eternal. A real hope. And that should be the motivation behind us to go tell others about it. So as we worship this morning, as we turn our affections to Jesus, because maybe he has revealed some places in your heart that you need to be more like him. I also want you to lean back into the gospel, which once drew you to him. When you realize for the very first time that you no longer will perish and go to hell, but that you've been saved into the gospel and let real affections be stirred for Jesus. And we sing out and worship to him, not out of guilt because we haven't maybe followed through with right living the way we're supposed to be, but out of love because he has saved us to motivate us and to strengthen us by the power of his Holy Spirit to go and live for him. And we're going to worship him because of that, because he is so great and so good to us. And as many times as we come to him and confess, I'm falling short here, Jesus. I can't live the way here I'm supposed to. Please, he is faithful to send his Holy Spirit and continually sanctify us and make us more like him so that we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit to live the way he wants us to. And that's what we want to worship him for this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, I love you. And I just pray as we Go into worship now. God, that there would be real motivations changed, real thoughts changed, real heart affections changed. And God, I just pray that if there is remotely, as I spoke last week, the thing that could kill us is knowledge, busyness, and laziness. If there's anybody in here that would be held back by following through because of knowledge, busyness, or laziness, Lord, that you would reveal to them that there is a way that they can follow through this week. There is a way that they can truly start being a minister of the gospel. That it's not up to me as a pastor or the elders of this church. It's up to all of us. And Lord, I pray that as they think and contemplate about the person that they wrote down. And the Holy Spirit comes and, and Lord, would you come now and, and stir real deep, real deep love affections for this person in their heart. 
that you would also come and, and stir real deep love affections for Jesus as well because of the gospel. And Father, that we would, we would worship now because we love you, because you've saved us, and because if we come right now and confess our utter dependence and our utter failure, you continually forgive us. You continually forgive us. There is no moment where we can't come and receive forgiveness. As I would always bring my children into my lap if they confess their sin. Because I deeply love them. As in Luke 15 when the father sprints toward the child coming back. Embraces him. Rubs his, throws his arms around him and kisses him on the cheek and says, my son, you're home. That they would see that that's how much you love them. That's how you continually forgive and that their affections for Jesus would be motivated and stirred back towards you and worship you now. God, if there's any fear in their hearts, take it away. You went to a cross, though there might have been fear in you. We can, if there's fear in our hearts, still go and love others. Pray these things in Jesus' name.